Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we have a good agenda for you today. We have a news roundup to start off with and we're going to talk about three topics there. Um, first is Windows 10 hitting 350 million uh, installations. Uh, second is Twitter's addition of stickers to the Twitter platform. And the third is Amazon's new strategy around phones, which doesn't involve making its own phone anymore, but involves selling cheap third-party unlocked Android phones with Amazon ads on the home screen in return for which you'll get a, a small discount off the price of those phones if you buy them through Amazon. Uh, our question of the week this week will be about Apple in India. Uh, this has been a topic that's been increasingly prominent on earnings calls for the last couple of quarters now. Uh, and so we're really going to ask kind of how is Apple doing in India and how might it do better there? So that's going to be our question of the week this week and I'll be answering the questions on that one. And then our third uh, segment will be about the changes that Facebook made or announced today to its news feed and the algorithm and uh, the priority given to different types of content there. And so we'll talk through what changes are being made there and the implications of those and why Facebook might be making those in our third segment. And then we'll wrap up as usual with a weekly pick and Aaron has a couple of things to recommend to us there. So that's the outline and the agenda for today and we'll kick off with the news roundup. And as I said, the first news item was that uh, Windows 10 has now hit, I think, 350 million uh, installations on various devices. So Aaron, what was your take on that news? Well, kind of two thoughts. One, it, it, I'm curious where it places Windows 10 versus Windows 7. I think that's kind of always the story when when Microsoft has the new OS come out as how's it doing against the old one because it's been a two-decade story now, right, where Microsoft has a hard time getting users to upgrade. Um, I don't know. I, I looked at it. I had a rough time finding good figures on that, but uh, 350 million feels like a, like a slow uptake to me, um, especially in light of, you know, how quickly people are moving with, you know, mobile Android or as mobile operating systems. I mean, over a billion Android users, you know, a billion iOS users in some form or another. It just it is crazy when you think about the history of Windows, how small 350 million feels now compared to the old days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of those things where, you know, five years ago, that might have seemed like a very significant number. Um, but, you know, now that the total base of Windows users is about the same as the total base of Android users, you know, you need a very significant portion of Windows users to be using a single version of Windows for it to be meaningful. Um, and to the extent that, you know, Windows 8 and Windows 10 are the only versions that have the Windows Store, which is kind of a key feature of this platform. If you're a developer, that's really what you have to look at. You add those two together and it's still far smaller than Android or iOS, um, especially because a lot of people will have upgraded from Windows 8 to Windows 10. Um, and yeah, that 350 million, I mean, it's, it's rapid growth, you could say, is faster, they've said, than previous versions. Uh, but of course, this is the first version that was completely free to upgrade to. Uh, and that expires pretty soon here. I think it's next month. Well, free um, and in some cases involuntary. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. So so given that A, it's been free, and B, Microsoft has been pushing this very hard to users through the update process, including some slightly nefarious ways of getting upgrading without you realizing that you're doing that. Um, given that, and that they've got to 350 million after about a year, um, it's really questionable whether they're going to hit their goal, which they set longer term, which was for a billion users in two to three years. 
And, you know, even if you take the current trajectory, you know, one year in, you've got 350 million. If you would assume the same trajectory, which seems very unlikely, you'd barely get to a billion after three years. And so uh, given that it's no longer going to be free, you're going to start paying for it next month. Um, given that, you know, they've pushed it very hard and some uh, many, many users are still resisting it, it, it seems very hard to get to the point where they get a billion devices. And that's not just PCs, obviously. Um, in, in theory, it includes mobile devices and others, but given the minimal presence in mobile and, and minimal presence, frankly, outside of PCs and mobile and any other kind of devices today, it doesn't seem like they're likely to get anywhere near that billion user goal. It doesn't seem like a crazy question to ask if there will even be a billion devices that support Windows 10 at, at that time, at least it's still you know, in use. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I, mean, I think there are about a billion and a half Windows uh, devices in use today. But, of course, many of those are quote-unquote in use. I mean, they may be used very occasionally. Some of them may be right. sort of essentially terminals um, where they're not really a personal computer to anybody in particular uh, and are never going to get upgraded. And so, you know, how many of those fall out of use in the next couple of years and how many of them are just never going to get upgraded to anything new? Uh, you know, the billion user number always seems like a very high bar to get to. All right, well, let's move on to the second topic, which is that Twitter added stickers uh, to uh, photos shared through the site uh, or the service through its apps and so on. Um, it, the, you know, and on one hand, it seems like an obvious move. Stickers have been a big part of you know, messaging services and Snapchat and things like that where um, you know, people like to add stickers to photos as they share them with friends, but um, Twitter isn't really a messaging service. It's something that's largely used in public. It's largely used to kind of follow... Uh, people that you don't know personally, it's not really this kind of personal communications app. And so stickers are a less obvious fit on Twitter. They've got a unique implementation of it in that they're sort of searchable. So you click on a sticker in a photo that somebody's shared and uh, you get to see a list of all the other pictures that have used the same sticker. So there's some clever stuff there, but again, you just wonder how relevant that is in the context of, of Twitter rather than a messaging app. And it just feels like another example of Twitter spending time and money and limited resources in places that really aren't going to move the needle very significantly. Well, and it's not primarily a messaging platform. It's a microblogging platform, and there's a huge difference between those two things. It doesn't seem like there would be a huge difference, especially because so many conversations take place. But the conversations are not unlike the kind that would happen on a blog page back you know, five or ten years ago. Or even are still happening now, obviously, but 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 less so. The point is, is that you send up when you when you post something on Twitter, you're sending it out to the world. You're telling the whole world, "Hey, this is something I'm thinking about." You're just doing it in a short form, and then whatever conversations ensue are not in your face. It just feels weird to focus on stickers as a thing here. And uh, I, I know if you're thinking of Twitter as just another messaging platform like Snapchat or or you know or whatsapp or something like that then it feels like a no-brainer to do stickers but it just feels it feels strange it feels um it it feels like a waste of energy and time so even if they do it better and that's the other thing is you know there from what i can tell it looks like people like the implementation but that's totally copyable i mean there's nothing about the implementation that can't be adapted by these other platforms where people actually do use and like stickers. That's the other thing is this has not been part of Twitter, the, like Twitter, the Twitter versus added, uh, culture, I guess. So it's a weird thing to sort of attach yeah. on. Whereas Snapchat like grew up on this. Right. Whereas Twitter, it feels like an it feels like an old person trying to be cool. 
<laughs> yeah, sort of uh, dad trying to muscle in on the kids' conversation. That's so. right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's go to our third news roundup topic, which is, is Amazon and its new smartphone strategy, which is instead of trying to sell its own phone, which of course was a flop a while back, um, it's now partnering with some Android vendors and selling um, a couple of different unlocked smartphones, so one from Motorola and one from, I think, Blue, uh, which is the largest seller of unlocked phones in the U.S., um, and these are unique in that they feature Amazon ads on the home screen, much as some of Amazon's Kindle products have done. And, and like those Kindle products, it offers a discount in return for that. Um, so you pay slightly less for the device uh, in return for being shown ads on your home screen um, and or on the lock screen, I should say. Um, and so there's a new strategy from Amazon around smartphones. Uh, it also allows it to pre-install some of the Amazon apps in a way that it's, it's struggled to do in the past. Uh, and that's really important given that it doesn't have its own presence in, in phones. It wants to get that out there. But um, not clear to me that this is really going to be all that successful. What do you think? No, I agree. I think where the ads make sense in the Kindle is because a person buying a Kindle is buying the the Amazon ebook ecosystem along with the Kindle. Arguably, the idea of buying a smartphone with ads baked in is to make smartphones cheaper enough to get people to buy into the Amazon ecosystem of everything you would buy from Amazon using a smartphone. What feels weird to me about that is people don't buy smartphones specifically to get more access to a thing that they want to buy besides the phone itself, right? With right. with with a Kindle, you you know you're going to be buying books from Amazon. Um, with a phone, that's not your first or immediate care by any means. And so it feels like like Amazon's just going to be, it, you know, subsidizing with ads to bring people in also feels strange because, I don't know, it, it, it'd have to be a pretty dramatic subsidy because there's so many cheap Android phones out there now. I just have a hard time picture Amazon pr- providing a value proposition involving advertising that people are going to prefer. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it has some sort of exclusive on these phones or anything either. You know, they're available through other channels. There are many other phones, to your point, that you can buy. They run Android. They're very cheap now, some of which are very good. Uh, And I think it's a $50 discount or something like that. So it's really not a very significant discount, given that there are phones that are $50 cheaper that are probably fairly adequate as well. And so, yeah, it just feels like it. I mean, it's an interesting strategy for Amazon. You know, they have to figure out ways to get their services onto phones. Uh, this is another way to try doing that, but it doesn't feel like it's going to be very successful to me. No, well, and it feels like, are you acquiring new Amazon customers with this strategy? That seems unlikely, and it, that's mm-hmm. the only reason to do it. Are you getting people right. to buy more stuff from Amazon with this approach? And I don't know, I have a hard time imagining that. I don't think people, just because they're, and I guess it depends on how the advertising works, right? Um, yeah. But, uh, but even then, people get pretty good at ignoring that kind of stuff, and... I mean, I don't know, should we set a stopwatch or just check our calendar for how quickly one of these phones gets rooted and replaced with some stock Android? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, unlike a Kindle, you know, this is running a sort of fairly standard operating system that you can easily replace yourself in most cases. So, you know, paying to unlock or get rid of the ads as you can on one of these Kindle devices is not something that most people are probably going to be willing to do. Right. All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said at the beginning, the question today is, uh, how is Apple doing in India? And 
is that likely to change or how could it change going forward? And so I've been spending a fair amount of time researching this uh, over the last few weeks. I, I put out several calls on Twitter for people that have direct experience with the Indian market to give me their ideas of what they think needs to be done. Um, Tim Cook was recently in India and did uh, quite a long TV interview, which I've watched a couple of times and taken notes on as well. Um, there's lots of interesting thoughts here about what, what India uh, means for Apple and, and how Apple could do better there. And so that's the subject of our question of the week today. So I'll be answering the questions and Aaron will be asking them. As we often do when we're talking about bigger topics like this, it's great to start with context. Um, so why don't you start with that for us, Ian? Give us some context, especially on population and economy, because Tim Cook in a previous uh, earnings call made reference to the idea that India is what China was 10 years ago. We're not sure exactly what he meant by that, but but he seems to be implying that there's a potential there and also similarities there. So why don't you talk us through India's demographic and economic uh, situation right now? To, to, so we're starting on the right foot. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's useful context. And, and absolutely, I'm going to make some comparisons to China specifically, because that's obviously become one of uh, Apple's two biggest markets over the last few years, and, and it's very important to them. It's very tempting to say India could be the same again. And, and Tim Cook has made some comments about how India is China a few years back. And um, the population-wise, you know, it's very, very similar. You know, it's 1.3 billion or just under in India compared to 1.37 billion for China. So more or less the same, about four times the U.S. population. Very different, though, in terms of income or wealth terms. So if you look at um, GDP per adult in India uh, last year, it was just under $3,000, while in China it was just under 10000 so about three times as much. Uh, for reference, the U.K. is 56000 and the U.S. is 73000 So gives you some sense of the gap there. Um, but it isn't just about averages either. I mean, if you if you look at the population distribution and in terms of kind of where that population sits, it's quite striking there. And there was a report by Credit Suisse that some of these numbers are being pulled from, which we'll link to on the website. But in India, they estimate that over 95% of the population has less than $10,000 in wealth or assets. Um, so 95% less than $10,000. Uh, compared to 62% in China. 99% uh, of Indians have total wealth or assets of under $100,000, and uh, it's 96% or something in China. So um, the proportion of Indians that have significantly less uh, than you would normally assume you would need to be able to buy luxury goods is, is much higher in India than it is in China. Um, when it comes to sort of the middle class, and that's a term that we all sort of instinctively understand, but it's actually very hard to define or set hard limits around. Uh, Credit Suisse bases that on that on a wealth cutoff there, and they use a, a figure in the 13,000s, but they reckon that 3% of the population in India is middle class. Um, so it's a very small percentage of the population is, is middle class, and even tinier percentage is, is actually upper class or wealthy. Um, given how enormous the population is, that's still 24 million people, which is about the same size middle class as in major European countries like the UK or France or Germany. Um, but uh, it's, you know, in the context of India in general, that's very, very small. And of course, in some of those European countries, you have a substantial population that's considered above middle class, upper class. Uh, and the other thing that's worth noting is the Indian economy is growing very fast. And this is something that Tim Cook's referred to quite frequently. He's referred to how young the population is. But the economy is growing at about 7% annually in terms of GDP over the last couple of years. And there's reforms going on that are intended to keep driving that growth going forward. So that's a little bit about the kind of the economy and population. 
Well, and that doesn't exactly sound like a market that's ripe for smartphone adoption. I mean, that many people having total assets of $10,000 or less, those are not smartphone customers. So talk to us a little bit about smartphones in India right now. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is it is one of the fastest growing smartphone markets in the world, um, but mostly because it's coming from a fairly low base and low penetration. So uh, about 100 million shipments last year. So it's a, a pretty sizable market at this point. It's, it's, I think, the second largest market in the world last year. Um, about 30% year-on-year growth. Um, IDC and other analysts are expecting double-digit growth again in 2016. Um, smartphones have been under 50% of sales, so um, feature phones are still a bigger chunk of total sales, but sometime this year that's expected to flip. Um, but, you know, 100 million sounds like a lot, but China sold 457 million smartphones last year, so four and a half times as big, basically. Um, it also looks very different from what's being sold in China or Western markets. So uh, it's dominated by very low-end sales. And so it depends on, again, what you take as your cutoff and so on and who you believe exactly. But something like 70 75% of the smartphones sold in India cost under $150 or 10,000 rupees. Um, and only 7% of the smartphones sold, or about 7 million phones last year, uh, were quote-unquote high-end, which is $300 or above. Um, so it's really dominated by those very low-end sales. Um, and that budget category, the under $150, is the fastest-growing category by a long way. It's growing like 40% a year or something like that, because that's basically where all the new smartphone customers are coming from is, is among sort of lower-income people that are typical of the population in India. The high-end is growing as well, but it's mostly growing at the lower end of that high-end bracket, so the sort of three to $400 range rather than sort of five, six, $700 range. Um, Samsung's the biggest smartphone vendor in India, has been for a couple of years now, um, but all the rest of the top five are either Chinese or Indian companies. So uh, local companies like Micromax, which is in second place, uh, Chinese companies like Huawei and others, uh, Xiaomi's done well there in the past, not so well this past year, uh, and others have come in, and, and the local brands especially, they dominate the market. So of the top 10, the vast majority are either Chinese or Indian companies with uh, Samsung and Apple sort of exceptions rather than the rule. Um, the online sales are becoming a bigger deal. So about a third of sales uh, last year were online. Uh, and that's provided an opportunity for those Chinese vendors because they tend not to have local retail distribution. So that's helped them. Also, theoretically, helps Apple if it decides to sell online. It hasn't been a big deal so far for them. Uh, 4G networks have been in rollout in earnest, and, and that's something that Tim Cook's referred to on earnings calls as a potential opportunity for Apple. Um, at least one of the analyst firms that I saw suggests that by the end of this year, about half the phones being sold will be LTE capable. So that's another thing that's starting to change. There is more 4G in the market. Talk to us more about how Apple is doing over there. I mean, this doesn't sound like, I mean, you kind of maybe already answered the question with how they're doing, but but talk to us more about Apple's involvement in India and, and how things are going for them. Yeah, so giving you kind of the economic and sort of population context and then the smartphone market, so we'll drill down another layer and talk about Apple specifically. And, you know, the last couple of earnings calls, it's come up a lot. You know, it's funny, I did a little chart 
in preparing for this just to see how often India was mentioned in previous earnings calls. A couple of years ago, it was mentioned once or twice on a couple of calls, and it wasn't mentioned at all for three or four quarters. Um, and then it's over the last year or so, it's built up. There was a couple of mentions here and there. And then the last two quarters, there were sort of 10 to 12 mentions each. And some of that was unprompted in the opening remarks, and some of it was in response to questions. But Tim Cook's had little kind of paragraphs or two on India for the last couple of earnings calls. And it's made India sound extremely important to Apple at the moment and, and really kind of talked it up. But it's worth putting all that into context. So I talked about 7% of smartphone sales being in that kind of quote-unquote high-end bracket, which is $300 and above. Apple only plays in that segment and really only plays in the upper part of that segment. Uh, and it sold around 2 million iPhones in India last year. Um, so if you put that in the context of 221 million iPhone sales globally last year, that's 1% basically. So it's a India and Indian iPhone sales are basically a rounding error for Apple at this point. Um, and it has about 1% to 2% of the Indian smartphone market, so it's a rounding error there as well. Um, the good news uh, comes when you start to focus on that high end of the market. So it has a tiny share of the overall smartphone market because it only plays in that one segment. When you look at that segment, its share is almost a third at this point, and that's come up quite significantly over the last couple of years. And if you look at $450 and above, it's actually almost half. And Samsung and Apple are almost splitting that part of the market in half with everybody else being sort of 5% or less at this point. So Apple does very, very well in the tiny segment where it competes. Um, and it's done that despite the fact that it has no retail stores. So that's another important facet of how Apple does in India is the traditional model that's used elsewhere with this network of retail stores just doesn't exist there because of government regulations that have prevented that in the past. So that's sort of a limiting factor there. So how does Apple do better? Because that is a pretty tiny slice. And I mean, how do they grow, especially because it feels like a lot of the factors that they need to improve are out of their hands, like economic growth in the country generally. Yeah, so as I've sort of asked people about this and talked to people and read about it and, and done my own research around it, there are kind of four key themes that have emerged in terms of how Apple could change this stuff. Uh, and the four things are price. Uh, the second one, services. Third is localization. And then fourth is distribution. So I'll kind of talk through each of those because they're each important and worth looking at uh, individually. Uh, the price one is the obvious one. I've just talked several times about how Apple only addresses part of this sort of 7% segment unless the price comes down from where it is. Apple is competing in a niche within a segment of this market. And uh, so price is the thing that comes up again and again when I talk to people. And um, certainly a lot of the people that I asked about this just said, oh, they have to bring the price down. The problem is, of course, that Apple doesn't do that, right? So it doesn't really generally uh, lower the quality of its products to lower the price. It doesn't typically sort of strip lots and lots of functionality out and sell a, a less functional version for a lower price. And, you know, Tim Cook was specifically asked about this in that TV interview that I mentioned earlier, and he kind of pushed back and said, we have, you know, quality standards. We're not going to compromise on those. And we're simply not going to put out a subpar product so that we can hit a certain price point. Um, you know, recently the iPhone 5S has been fairly discounted in India. That's obviously a couple of years old at this point, and that's actually sold fairly well for them. It's been about a third of their total sales. 
uh, it's dragged down the ASP quite a bit um, because it has been so heavily discounted. And it's got to about the sort of four to four hundred and fifty dollar price range there, which is which allowed it to be available as an option to more people. But then you know Apple's brought out the iPhone SE, and that's come in at um, something somewhere in the five hundreds, uh, depending on whether you look at the official retail price or what you actually pay people. But the biggest problem that Apple faces is that there are very high taxes and duties in India. And once you kind of combine those two things together, it pushes even the theoretical price point way above uh, what most people can ever pay for a phone. And even as the prices kind of come down over time, it's still very hard for the vast majority of Indians to afford those products. The obvious solution to that is that Apple does what it does elsewhere, which is all these sort of certified pre-owned devices that it's getting back from the iPhone upgrade program and from uh, people bringing in phones that have stopped working and then they fix them and they sell them on. That's the obvious solution for bringing the price down because you could suddenly get into the sort of two to $300 price range for, say, an, an older iPhone or, or three to $400 range for a newer phone. Uh, as I say, that's the approach that Apple's pursued elsewhere. But the Indian government recently made a decision that Apple wouldn't be allowed to sell those. And they've got some spurious environmental reasons for not doing that, which seems ironic because it's actually more environmentally friendly to put these phones back into the market than to send them to landfill but um, they've blocked that and so that was the obvious solution for Apple to kind of extend beyond the sort of three to four percent of the market they can address right now uh, and yet it's been shut off and so even though price is the thing that keeps coming up again and again and again it's really hard to see how Apple comes down meaningfully enough in price uh, to make a big difference and that means that these other three things that I'm going to talk about become that much more important because that's where Apple potentially has more wiggle room and more more room to actually move the needle on this. Uh, so the second thing uh, that I'll talk about is services. And if you look at Apple's set of services, it's easy if you live in the US to assume that they're all global. Uh, so all the stuff that comes in iOS all works everywhere. And the reality is it doesn't. There are elements that do work in many, many places around the world. But there are other aspects of its services portfolio that either don't work at all or are severely handicapped in different places. And so when it comes to services in India, um, the Maps app works and the basic maps and the satellite images and that kind of thing are there, but there's no traffic information, there's no business reviews, there's no transit, um, there's no directions. So you can look at a map, but you can't get directions from point A to point B, and you certainly can't get turn-by-turn -turn navigation. So all of those features of Maps are unavailable in India right now. Uh, Siri does exist for certain basic functions. It does sports scores and some other things, but there's a lot of the other stuff that Siri does in other markets that it simply can't do in India. Um, in iTunes, uh, there are actually only six countries where Apple offers TV shows through iTunes, and India is not one of them. So there's no TV shows through iTunes. Uh, there's no Apple Pay in India. Uh, there is no Apple News in India, because that's only in three countries right now. And there is iBooks, but if you actually look in the iBooks store, it's only sort of free titles. There's no sort of paid-for titles, none of the blockbusters or anything are there. So there's lots of examples of where services in India are really subpar compared to other parts of the world right now. Uh, and so India is being treated like the small market it is. You know, 2 million iPhones sales a year is probably like a lot of other small countries that don't have these services. But if Apple wants to think of India as being this massive new market that they can tap into, and certainly from a population perspective, you know, it seems like there's more potential there, it needs to kind of start acting like it wants India to be rather than how it actually is for Apple today. And one of the people that responded to my questions on this said, treat India like a major market, and it may just become one. And I don't think, obviously, you suddenly double and triple the size of India's market share for Apple uh, overnight by doing this. But it's a big component in what Apple needs to do to, to fix things. And um, so that's, that's the second one is services. 
closely tied to that is localization. And uh, India is really complicated from a localization perspective. Uh, if you look at census figures for India, there are over 1,300 languages spoken in India, uh, of which 29 have more than a million speakers, uh, 60 have over 100,000 speakers. And uh, many Indians do speak English because of the kind of colonial history and so on, uh, but Hindi is the official language there. Uh, and over 400 million people consider that a native language for them. Uh, Bengali, Telugu, Tamil, Marathi, Gujarati, Kannada, Urdu, and about five other languages all have over 10 million speakers. Um, and as of today, iOS doesn't provide much localization to reflect that. So Hindi's got a special keyboard where you type on the English letter keyboard, but it creates Hindi characters. I think that's actually referred to as the Hinglish keyboard, which I thought was kind of funny. Mm. Um, but there are seven other Indian languages that have native keyboards, so the characters show up in the native languages. Now, as you type them, they come up that way. But there's another sort of half dozen of these really big sort of 10 million plus speaker Indian languages that don't have any kind of keyboard on the iPhone today. So it's a very fragmented market from a language perspective, and Apple's partly addressed that, but there's certainly a lot more that they could do to address the vast number of people that, that live in areas where these other languages are the main language that's spoken. Uh, Siri in India is English only, for example, so there's no Hindi support there. Uh, so there's other elements of that. And then beyond language, uh, localization uh, in things like local content and Apple Music. And so the, the most uh, popular music service in India is called Savan and is much better apparently for, for Indian music than Apple Music is today. So they need more local content there. They, they don't have TV shows and iTunes yet, but in movies as well, they, they need that kind of Bollywood uh, catalog there. Um, maps, I mentioned, you know, there's some detail there, but a lot of the functionality is not there. Um, and so there's a lot of this is closely tied to the services point I was making earlier, but localization, really treating India like the market that you want it to be when it comes to localization. That was another thing that Tim Cook was asked about in that TV interview. The interviewer kind of talked about how Samsung uh, and other major sort of international brands, when they come to India, they kind of act almost like Indian companies. They kind of talk as if they are Indians, you know, in their advertising and so on. They have advertising that's very customized. And the, the uh, interviewer on the television interview was saying, you know, the most recent Apple I saw, Apple ad that I saw was the Cookie Monster one with Siri. Like, that's fine, but, you know, Cookie Monster is not a local character. It's not one that necessarily speaks to people in India. Um, and Apple basically shows these same ads it creates for the U.S. market in India. And so there may well be work to be done there. And if you look at, if you visit the Apple India website, it's basically the U.S. website with very slight tweaks and changes. But all the screenshots and stuff like that are all from the U.S. Uh, and so, you know, mapping and stuff like that, it shows kind of subway stations in New York or uh, BART stations in San Francisco or whatever, rather than something more relevant to the Indian audience. So there's a lot more work on the subtler side around marketing that Apple could do for localization too. And then the fourth thing is distribution. And so I mentioned earlier that Apple doesn't have any retail stores. That's because of this law in India that you have to make, uh, if you're going to be a single company retailer, as, you know, sort of selling your own stuff as a retailer, you have to make 30% uh, of the product in India. And of course, Apple doesn't make any products in India today. Um, and so it hasn't been allowed to operate stores. And it looks like after lots of work over the last couple of years, Apple's finally going to get at least temporary reprieve uh, from those limitations so that it can start to open some stores in India. And that's something Apple's wanted to do for a while, and that should help. Um, you know, distribution today is all through third-party retailers. There's this complex sort of discounting structure and so on. 
More to the point, though, Apple hasn't had a way to showcase all of its set of products. And so it does sell Macs, it does sell iPads, in addition to iPhones. We've, we've talked mostly about the iPhone because that's by far the biggest product for Apple as a whole, and certainly in India. Uh, but having Apple stores allows customers to see how these things all work together, allows Apple to showcase these things in a setting where it can really show them off and so on. And so uh, it's important. It's, it's, you know, again, don't want to overstate that. The fact that Apple might have, you know, half a dozen retail stores over the next couple of years is not going to dramatically turn their fortunes around, but it's been an important part of their strategy elsewhere. And so that will be a critical component of trying to turn things around in India and, and improve its presence there. So it's, those are four of the sort of major categories where Apple uh, could do more in India. Well, when I think about the services and the localization in particular, that seems like a huge amount of work. And so it makes me yeah. wonder, is is Apple really up for this? When they were first talking about China, before they started really moving into China, it feels like there was a lot more in place. Whereas with India, it feels like there's so much still ahead of Apple before they really we could imagine them having success there in the in you know at the scale that matters to apple so you know do you think apple can actually do this i mean do you think they get this and they can actually pull this off yeah, I, the, Apple certainly seems to understand this. And, and again, I keep going back to that TV interview because it's one of the sort of few extended sort of discussions of Apple's position in India that we have where we really have Tim Cook's perspective on this. And he's obviously driving all of this. Um, and he was asked about some of this and, and the services stuff in particular. And the phrase he kept using about India was, we're really taking a step back and looking at in India strategically now. And so it's no longer just another sort of checkbox in the list of countries in which Apple has a presence. It's we're treating India as a strategic market. What can we do to really move the game forward? And so, um, you know, he kept using that phrase uh, about taking a step back and looking at it strategically. And so there are new things they're doing. They do get the services thing. They talk to banks while they're out there about Apple Pay. Um, you know, I think they get that some of these other sort of things like maps and so on need to do better. And one of the things that was announced while Tim Cook was there was a maps center. So, you know, building a local presence all around, you know, building better maps for Apple Maps uh, for the Indian market specifically. Um, and so that means better map data, but it means also localizing. Again, I didn't mention this earlier, but the labels in Apple Maps in India are all in English. Uh, they're not in Hindi or any of the other languages. And so I would imagine that another element of what they will do there is localizing the actual tiles and the, the words on the maps and so on so that they'll be more usable by people for whom English is not the first language. Um, so there's the Map Center. They also uh, announced this accelerator for apps and support for developers in India because they've been really talking up what they're doing in China there over the last several years and how many developers they have. I think it's 1.3 million or something developers they have in China now. Um, nothing like that in India yet. And so that's a big area where they want to invest and get more local content, get more apps in the App Store and so on. That's another important part of the services strategy. So Apple does seem to get this and they're doing these things. I mentioned the retail store strategy. Obviously, they've wanted to get the refurbished phones in there. That hasn't worked for them yet. And so they have to keep kind of hammering away at that. Uh, but they do seem to understand that they do need to approach India differently, that they need to make a bigger investment there if they want it to pay off. And they do seem to be willing to put some of that work in, including putting local resources in India and starting to treat it like the potential market that it could become rather than the relatively small part of Apple's business that it is today. And so, um, you know, I think the Tim Cook visit was obviously good for PR as well. You know, he was on TV quite a bit. Um, you know, went to a cricket match, met some Bollywood stars, um, you know, met with the prime minister, met with a lot of other uh, important figures in India um, to try to kind of promote 
uh, Apple there and to, to show that Apple cares about that market and made this fairly dramatic statement about we're not here for just one quarter or two quarters, we're here for a thousand years, which, you know, is a bit ridiculous kind of on the face of it. But, you know, the point is it's a long-term commitment to the market. It's not just a flash in the pan. It's not just trying to kind of uh, fill a hole left by a decline in sales in China for a couple of quarters. This is kind of a long-term commitment. And I think it is going to take a very long time for Apple to build a really significant business in India. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch that unfold. Thanks for the, the great job on the question of the week. Yeah. Thanks for the questions. All right, well, let's move on to our third segment, which is about Facebook. And again, they announced today um, some changes to the way that the newsfeed algorithm works and specifically changing the order in which uh, they prioritize different types of content. And uh, it's always interesting to watch the media reporting on uh, topics and, and news that directly impacts them. And a lot of them are certainly seeing it that way as sort of, uh, news articles and so on being demoted essentially in the Facebook feed but there's more to it than that and so we wanted to spend a few minutes kind of talking about this and the ins and outs and why Facebook might be doing this and what the impact might be so Aaron why don't we start with your take on this news well when I read the news I sort of I stopped and thought how is it that I get uh, news articles into my Facebook feed and they seem to come in three ways there are the really spammy ads that are just clickbait articles um, and none of my friends shared them with me. There's the the articles I come across because friends that I have in my in my friends list have liked the publication, and because of that, individual articles will get pushed through to me. What's not clear to me is whether or not these ads are actually whether or not these articles are are ad are paid advertising or not. Uh, you know, when when it says like. You know, X number. You, these friends have liked the the New York Times, and here's an article from the New York Times. It seems like the New York Times is probably paying for that, but I don't know. Um, and then the third is when friends just directly share links with a comment about you know something about that article that they think is interesting. Um, I wonder how that mix is changing. Certainly, it seems like the the direct advertising pieces are going to stay right where they are, and they're not going to change and. I'm sad to say I don't think we're going to see less or fewer clickbait articles um, showing up in our Facebook feeds. It's the second and, and third ones that, I, that, are, that I'm curious about to, to know how those are going to change in frequency and placement. Yeah, I, one of the things that's interesting to me, and, and Facebook's never commented on this officially, but there have been a lot of leaks over the last few months about this, um, and that's... Um, what appears to be a decline in what's called organic sharing. And so uh, the information, for example, is an online subscription-based news site, had some of this data a while ago, and it seemed to show a fairly dramatic decline over the last couple of years in what's called organic sharing, which is not where I'm sharing a URL or something like that or a YouTube video, but sharing something that's personal to me. So I'm, it's either a status update or it's a picture that I've taken of you know, myself or my family or something like that or a video that I've created myself. So the, the really organic stuff that comes from me personally rather than stuff I've seen elsewhere and then happen to share to Facebook. And there's been a real decline in that over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, I wonder if part of that is that people feel like, oh, my friends weren't seeing a lot of the stuff I was sharing. I wasn't getting the engagement that I wanted around that stuff. When I post an article, my friends seem to see that and like that. So I'm going to just do more of that. And, of course, what that means is that the sharing that happens on Facebook becomes less personal, feels like you're connecting less with your friends, and it's just another sort of source of generic content. Um, you know, the, the sort of social graph behind that is sort of almost incidental to it. 
Um, and so one of the things that I found interesting in the, the, these newsfeed values that uh, Facebook posted today, and which some of which is a change, uh, is that friends and family come first. In other words, that Facebook's primarily about connecting with friends and family, um, and you want to feel connected to them, and you want to feel like the stuff that you're sharing, the stuff that they're sharing, kind of really does connect you and is personal. Um, and so that's kind of the first principle that they've put out in these new newsfeed values, as they call it. And I think it's intended, frankly, to address that issue of organic sharing because once people stop feeling like Facebook gives them a place to connect to their friends and suddenly it just becomes a substitute for many other kinds of news and content sites that they could be going to. And so what makes Facebook unique is that it is built around that network of friends. And so I think they really want to preserve that and make sure that that differentiator for them kind of stays in place. This reminds me of the conversation we had last week about Instagram and their user growth where they've hit 500 mm. million. Uh, you know, MAUs, the thing that's fascinating to me there is in comparing it to this is we talked about how Instagram's growth is has a lot to do with the fact that people like the intimacy of Instagram. I mean, they'll follow brands and other things on Instagram as well, but they like that they're mostly just getting updates about people's lives, obviously enhanced with pictures or video, which makes it more engaging. But, uh, you know, it'd be, it's interesting to, it'd be interesting to know how much of that has influenced the change being made to the Facebook algorithm. Um, because I wonder, Facebook having seen success in Instagram's growth based on this idea that it feels more intimate, I wonder if that's the, the, the next purpose here. Um, what's, what's troubling about it though, for if I was working for Facebook and working on this problem is that the way advertising occurs in a Facebook page or app is very different than the way advertising occurs in Instagram. and. And I, I'm curious how much, how much just the advertising approach and advertising models are, are making Facebook feel really different than Instagram feels. Because with Instagram, you get, you know, I don't know, I guess anecdotally, it seems like every five posts or so, it's usually the second or third if I'm scrolling down, I'll see an ad placement, but it doesn't feel intrusive. It doesn't feel annoying. It's easy to go past. The ones that I'm interested in feel more engaging versus Facebook where either in the app or or on the web page it feels a lot more like you know the old annoying banner ads hmm, that's interesting I, I don't know if that's been the case for me as much and this is one of the challenging things about these ad-based strategies is that they can feel different to different people even if you're having basically the same experience but um but yeah, I mean, absolutely, regardless of how the newsfeed algorithm changes, you're still going to see all the same ads and everything else. So that, that isn't going to change, it seems. Um, it was interesting, too, in these newsfeed values to see Facebook kind of reiterating some core principles around, you know, not kind of discriminating against different kinds of content, because obviously that's been in the news quite a bit over the last couple of months, and we've talked about it a little bit here already. Um, but, you know, Facebook was accused of kind of burying conservative news, for example, and sort of two of the principles that are mentioned here um, address that specifically, one of which is you know, titled A Platform for All Ideas. So they're saying we're not in the business of picking which issues the world should read about. Um, and so they don't favor specific kinds of sources or ideas and welcome a multitude of viewpoints and so on. Um, but then they also have a point about authentic communication. In other words, they want to make sure that stuff that's shared is genuine, that it's basically true. And that, that's a bit trickier. And that was kind of part of the response of Facebook to this story about suppressing conservative news a while back was that they do suppress certain publications based on the fact they don't feel like they're actually 
accurate or truthful uh, in their quote-unquote reporting. And so that gets to kind of a fine line, and I'm interested to see kind of how that gets received over the longer term and how people perceive it's being implemented because, um, I mean, I think we need that, frankly. I think this election cycle, both in uh, the U.S. and in the U.K. with the recent decision there, has been characterized by a lot of disinformation and misinformation in the press and the media about either issues or candidates. Um, but you know, on the other hand, you have to be very careful that you're, um, you know, untruthful. There's not somebody else's kind of point of view. And so um, it'll be interesting to kind of watch how that evolves over time as well. Yeah, I agree. I, th I think one of the thought that strikes me as fascinating about this is how much it drives home the point that news publications have become ad buyers as much or more than they are ad sellers anymore. I mean, it used to be the case that the way that, 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 publications would advertise us through junk mail because they would get you to subscribe. And once you've subscribed, they don't have to advertise to you anymore until right. your subscription needs renewal. But with the death of the subscription model, it, you know, despite, you know, noble efforts to, to, to revive it online, with the death of the subscription model, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, very major publications now become advertisers, not just sellers of advertising space. Because they're going to have to pay, I mean, the result of this, the net result, is if they're going to get the same readership, they're going to have to pay Facebook more money uh, for, for, to, to better compete in placement in your newsfeed. And, uh, and it's strange to think of these news organizations as ad buyers almost more than they are ad sellers. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point, that. And, and certainly, as I said, a lot of the coverage today was about how um, there would be um, you know, a shift away from sort of the news articles and towards other stuff, which, um, you know, I think in the official kind of announcement about this, Facebook said explicitly this may lead to, uh, well, I'll see the exact wording here, there's a question, sort of an FAQ thing, will this impact my page? And the response from Facebook, overall we anticipate that this update may cause reach and referral traffic to decline for some pages. The specific impact on your page's distribution and other metrics may vary depending on the composition of your audience. <laughs> so that um, all means so yes. there's a lot more detail. <laughs> so basically, you know, and this is why these media organizations that are covering this are kind of freaking out because it very directly impacts them. And it's just another indication of quite how powerful Facebook is becoming as a source of traffic and as a sort of gatekeeper for this stuff. And every time it tweaks its algorithm, even with smaller changes, it have caused very significant changes in traffic for certain publications. But this is a big change. It's broad and sweeping that could potentially affect all kinds of uh, publications. You know, just a reminder of how powerful Facebook's become and how, um, you know, these news publications that are working with Facebook kind of out of, out of necessity still don't necessarily like that very much uh, and in some cases may well end up suffering as a result of that. Right. All right, well, we'll wrap up that segment there and uh, and then finish off the episode with our weekly pick and this turn, this time, excuse me, it's Aaron's turn to share a couple of things with us. Well, as you probably remember, Yen, I switched to an iPad Pro, the 9.7-inch model, a couple months ago. One of the things that I went out looking for immediately was an iPad sleeve. Um, I had a sleeve that I really liked for my iPad mini. I like having a sleeve instead of a case because I like, when I'm using my iPad, I like holding just the iPad itself. And so I went out looking for sleeves and did a ton of research on, on a bunch of different products. I ended up settling on a sleeve that uh, I really liked when I first got it. I still like it now, so this is a review I'm giving a couple months after using the product. 
but it's it's a it's made out of wool felt and it's by a company called Bird and Bell. Bird is spelled B Y R D, Bell is spelled B E L L E. And they specialize in felt as a material for all kinds of cases and slipcovers and and so on. And and uh, anyway, the one I got is the the iPad Pro sleeve with pockets, and so it has two pockets on the front that are sewn on. One is large enough to fit an Apple Pencil plus a uh, you know one or two other pens, and then the other pocket is larger, big enough to fit things like accessories or notebooks, which I'll be getting to in a second. So I really like the. I was worried that the felt would wear down quickly. Um, and and sort of look uh, dingy after a while, but it's holding up pretty well, and I'm really happy with it. The uh, they only have two colors to choose from: a dark gray and a lighter gray, but they're both quite tasteful and professional looking. And so that's forty eight dollars, which isn't crazy cheap for an iPad case, but also not so expensive that it feels ridiculous. The 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 build quality, like the, the, the quality of stitching and the quality of material is really high, so it definitely feels worth the cost. Um, the other thing that kind of goes along with this uh, is I've been looking for a good notebook that will fit into that pocket just right. And the reason I was looking for a notebook, I, I bring my iPad to all, all of my meetings, but sometimes I'm in a meeting where it's just not appropriate to be taking notes on my iPad because it's easy to look like you're doing other stuff. And every once in a while I find there's just more, it's it's either more appropriate to be taking notes in a notebook or there's like one or two little things that I just need to make a quick note of and finding a place to stick that information in my iPad just feels annoying. I, I guess part of this reflects that I don't have a great note-taking system on my iPad that I really like. But anyway, searching for notebooks, it just so happened, and this has been marketed pretty heavily um, on Daring Fireball and Loop Insight and some of the other big Mac news groups that are design-oriented, but um, but uh, Field Notes brand just came out with a new uh, special edition, and so occasionally they do special editions of their notebooks. And this one is very different because in the past, the special edition notebooks are the same sort of dimensions as uh, other field notes books notebooks that they make this one was very different because it was a in the style of a reporter's notebook which is thinner and taller bound across the top with wire coils um, it has a flip cover and then also a cover in the back that has a pocket for things like business cards or receipts um, anyway it fits just perfectly and it also matches <laughs> like aesthetically to the case that I bought and so so my 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 pick of the week is is these two. One is um, the uh, the iPad, the felt iPad case from Bird and Bell, and the one with the pockets on the front. And then the other is the byline edition of the Field Notes, this reporter style notebook that I'm really enjoying having. So those are my those are my weekly picks. Fantastic. Well, I'll include links to both of those on the website, along with links to a bunch of stuff that we discussed, including the news roundup topics and several of the sources that I used uh, for the, the question of the week as well. So thank you for being with us. We hope you found it useful and uh, entertaining and interesting. As always, please uh, give us feedback on Twitter, on the website or elsewhere. Uh, we're pretty easy to find and to reach. And again, our contact details are on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. So thanks again, and we'll be with you again next time. Thanks.